0: the book of Genesis, really just the Old Testament, his story. So what we're looking at is God's story with the human family. We began early on in Genesis, uh, just after creation with Adam and Eve, and uh, today we're in Genesis 39, and I've entitled our message, The Turnaround. On a YouTube video, astronomer Dr. Peter Edwards explains the mystery or the majesty of the universe. He said, you'll never ever get your head around how big the universe is. It is just enormous. There is no way, I think, that the human mind can comprehend the true immensity of the universe. We're happy with the size of an elephant, or the size of a tree, or the size of a cathedral, but if we go beyond that, our brains just start to run out of gas. And we pointed, he says, the Hubble telescope at what appeared to be a very ordinary patch of the night sky. And if you imagine holding up your finger with one grain of sand on the end of your finger, one grain of sand, and looking at the patch of sky, that grain of sand actually blocks out. That's the field that the Hubble telescope zoomed into. So you got one grain of sand on an outstretched finger and arm. The Hubble telescope is zoned into just that amount of the universe. This is what he said exists there. What the telescope saw was incredible. Within that grain of sand scope, there are 10,000 galaxies in a patch of sky that size. If this tiny patch of sky is like every other, then we can calculate how many galaxies are out there. The visible universe contains about 100 billion galaxies. Each one of those galaxies contains about 100 billion stars. That means the visible universe contains something like 10,000 million, million, million stars. I don't even know what that means, but he's smarter than I am. That means there are more stars. Now, this is what I struggled with. That means there are more stars in the visible universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. And I don't know what to think of that. I cannot imagine that that's accurate, but I assume he did the math and that he's smarter than we are on this subject. More stars in the visible universe than there are grains of sand on the planet. And I tell you that to tell you this. God's presence is said to occupy every speck of that universe and what we can't see. In fact, there's there's a verse in Colossians. Colossians 3 I believe it's 15, 16, or 17, claims that Christ actually holds it all together. In Colossians 3, it's talking about the person of Christ, and it says, by him, all things consist, and that term can easily be interpreted, are held together. In other words, that's something physicists are still trying to figure out. Why does the universe not come back together or completely uh, continue to, you know, separate and expand, and there's a lot of theory about that. They can't figure out what holds the universe together. The Bible says Jesus Christ does. Listen to this. The furthest galaxy discovered by spectroscopy is Z8-GND-5296.6 North, I believe. And that's not an old AOL screen name. It's a galaxy that is... 13.8 billion light-years away. Spatially speaking, it's what we would call the highest height, from where we are, the highest height. The deepest depth is the Challenger Deep, part of a trench almost seven miles beneath the U.S. territorial island of Guam. From the zero gravity of space to the 1,000 times atmospheric pressure of the deep sea, anything would be crushed there, God's love, his presence, is present and accounted for. You can't escape it, even if you could escape time and space. His love goes beyond the borders of space, beyond the boundaries of time. Actually, we have a a scripture verse that sort of references those places. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Listen to this. For I'm convinced, this is the Apostle Paul writing, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, in other words, as far as you can get away, or depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Height and depth. I just gave you the greatest coordinate for the highest height and the best coordinate we have for the deepest depth, which I think sort of Paul alludes to here, and God's love and character and presence are theoretically occupying those spaces. God is infinite and he is omnipresent. That's the theory anyway. And I've got a lot of Bible verses I can back that up with. But I suspect we've all been in some places in life, not geographically, but circumstantially, where we would suggest this has been put to the test. Who hasn't felt alone in an impossible situation and felt that God just wasn't there? who hasn't experienced the silence of God in their lives and wondered why God wouldn't answer a prayer, why you couldn't sense his presence in difficulty, who hasn't felt abandoned in circumstances and situations that can't be humanly fixed or changed. And you needed God, and you wanted God, but you just weren't convinced he was with you. I know I have. Not theologically, but practically. And today we find Joseph in just such a situation, isolated, hopeless. And I want to look at how God responds to him and how he responds to God. So I want to read with you a passage in Genesis, chapter 39. It is on page 30 in the Bible in front of you. So Old Testament, beginning of the Bible there, just get to page 30, and we're going to look at Genesis, chapter 39. Some of the story is familiar to you because it's the story of Potiphar's wife, but I don't believe that's the primary purpose of this story. So we're going to look at this together. Genesis chapter 39, it's on page 30, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now we'll describe that story again for those of you who weren't here last week. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he, Potiphar, left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with, him there, uh, there, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke with Joseph, or to Joseph, day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household uh, was there inside. And She caught him by his garment, saying, "'Lie with me.' He left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, "'See, he he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside.' So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife that she spoke to him saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. But the Lord was with Joseph. And extended kindness to him, and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. It's a fascinating story, and again, I don't think that the. uh, the temptation situation in the middle is the primary point of the story. We'll talk about that in a moment. First, just three simple points here. One of them sets the, creates the setting or the context. For the child of God, no situation is truly hopeless. Moses, uh, we believe, put this together. Moses is the author, and he's setting the stage for a turnaround in Joseph's life. That's why it's entitled The Message, The Turnaround. And Joseph needs a turnaround, And I'm kind of going to repeat a little bit of the context here and from the story last week. So in Genesis chapter 11, you know, before that you've got creation, early man, sin, the fall, the flood. Genesis chapter 11 is really a new uh, scene that's developing on the earth as it relates to God's program to communicate to the human family. In Genesis chapter 11, the peoples of earth are scattered throughout the globe. And once that happens, God says the way to deal with them, the way he wanted to communicate himself to them, was to raise up a nation that would be, and the prophets called Israel, a light to the Gentile. So he's going to raise up a nation, we know it to have been Israel, and he's going to start with one man, because he's not just going to create a nation out of nothing and fill it with people, he's got to start with a man who becomes a clan that becomes a nation. So God's plan is to reach the world by elevating a nation that would be faithful to him. That's the key. If they're not, he'll remove this blessing. If they are, he will bless them in every way so that the whole world will see that they follow the true God. So God made a covenant with Abraham. We see that in Genesis 12, 15, 18 different elements of this. He made a covenant with a man named Abraham, and then those promises of that covenant are passed on to his descendants. So we'll see some of those promises then repeated to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to the 12 sons eventually here as they become a nation. Joseph is one of those sons. So he's got a great great grandpa Abraham and then Isaac, Jacob, etc. He becomes the focal point of Genesis 37 to 50. Now, as we said last week, we're, we're turning away from the progenitors of Messiah, or Jesus. Joseph is not in the line of Christ. Judah, his brother, is. But Joseph is now the most important son of Jacob, the most important son of the twelve because of the role he plays in the nation in helping them survive. So Genesis 37 to 50 is largely about Joseph. So last week we told a story. Joseph was Jacob's, his dad's favorite son. Not okay. A lot of dysfunction in this family. He's one of his favorite sons, not okay, from his favorite wife, also not okay. So he's the youngest in a family of 13 children from four different women. Massive dysfunction in this family. All kinds of favoritism, all sorts of sort of competition between the children of these different women. And he had a special robe that dad gave him that identified him as the future clan leader. His older brothers hated him. He's 17 last week in our sermon. He's got older brothers that are probably in their 30s. And how would you like your little brother to come and tell you stories about how someday you're going to bow down to him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he had these two dreams from God that indicated his future place in the clan, that he would be the most important. And they would bow down to him. He would be the focal point. And he shared these dreams with his brothers. Also, not okay. So one day he went to check on his brothers and on the flocks to report back to Daddy. And he's wearing his special little robe. While he was on his way, his brothers developed a plan to kill him and to throw him in a dry well. Instead, they held him alive in that dry well And they sold him to traders who were traveling to Egypt. And God's little dreamer had lost it all. He is bound, likely caged. He travels for days with this caravan. And he wonders the same thing you and I would wonder. He wonders if God has lost him. Actually, many ancient cultures, and I believe Israel at times, until they really understood God, would have believed that gods were localized. So when you look at the Baal cult and the Asherah cult that you see develop in Israel later on, these are, you know, pagan religions... They, there would be a Baal god for a different place. So early religions often believe God is localized. He's not like the god of the heavens. He's a god just of this region. And so Israel doesn't have a very well-developed view of God yet. This is early in their history with God. It would not be unusual to think that God's promises are connected to the land that he was in and now he's going to a new land with different gods and he would have every reason to doubt. At this point, Israel's just a clan. Little knowledge of God, and every mile creates greater doubt. He arrives in Egypt. We're not given the scene. It's possible he hits a slave market that's a public square. It's possible that Potiphar knew these traders. They knew what he wanted, a fairly educated young individual. Possible they just brought him to Potiphar and made the deal. But now he is sold for a second time in probably two weeks to the captain of Pharaoh, the king's bodyguard. He has every reason to feel alone. He has every reason to dump God. He has every reason to doubt that the dreams are going to come true anymore. And he has every reason to abandon any moral framework that accompanied the faith that he was raised with. If God isn't with me, Why would I be faithful to the sexual ethics that I was taught in my clan? Maybe sometimes this makes sense to walk away. Maybe God doesn't work for all of us. I mean, that's probably his thought. Maybe this God doesn't, but God wasn't done. And in chapter 39, Moses gets us ready for the turnaround by restating these circumstances right away. He ended chapter 37 with him. Then you've got kind of a bizarre chapter 38 that helps us understand how Judah's in the line of Christ. Then you've got 39, and Moses gives us the story again because he wants to see how God becomes the hero of the story in Joseph's life and how he reacts to it. And here's the primary authorial intent from this passage. Our next point. For the child of God, his favor and blessing follow us into every situation and circumstance. This is the point of the chapter. And we can talk about Potiphar's wife all we want. She is an interesting character. We'll talk about her in a moment. But this is really the point of the chapter because she helps Joseph get into the second situation where God is with him and blesses him in every situation and circumstance. This is the point. It's not a chapter about how to beat temptation when an Egyptian woman steals your bathrobe. But it's in there. But that's not what it's about. There are ways of knowing authorial intent in narrative literature. And by narrative literature, I mean story in the Bible, history. There are ways to understand what Moses is trying to point out most. And, and narrative literature is, easily, is not always easily interpreted. But it, what really helps is when the author or the editor of scripture, in this case Moses, God's the author, Moses is the editor, if you will, Moses uses repetition. And whenever you see repetition on a regular basis, that was repetition, repetition, whenever you see a lot of repetition, that's a great way to understand what the editor of scripture is trying to make the primary point. And Moses gives us a lot of it In this chapter, he tells multiple stories with the same primary purpose and primary point. I want you to listen for this because I'm going to read them for you a little bit. All right, verse two. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Verse three. The master saw... Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him, Joseph, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Verse five, it came about from that time he made him overseer at his house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Potiphar's benefiting from God's blessing on Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Could Moses make it any clearer what he is trying to tell us? And then you have this little incident with the wife. You get to the end of the chapter. Listen to this, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. First he's a slave, the Lord was with him. Everything he did prospered. Now he's a prisoner and a slave. Verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Verse 23, the chief dealer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. You think we're onto something here? Moses is repeating this over and over and over. And that's actually unusual. This level of it is unusual. Often it's just an editorial comment a couple of times in a chapter. He doesn't do that. There is massive repetition here, and it is the clue. That's what Moses wants to tell us. Joseph was not alone. He arrived a slave in the home of a high Egyptian official, and he went from crowned leader of the clan that would bless the world that would become Israel to a slave in a country serving other gods. He became nothing, he was in a hopeless situation. But Moses wants us to know that God is never off-duty when it comes to his own. And no matter where we are, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we are like Joseph. God never abandoned him. Everything Joseph did succeeded. I don't think God promises us that. But everything Joseph did succeeded. So he's promoted. And everything he touches prospers. So Potiphar gets this guy in his his home and he has literally hit the jackpot with slaves here. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. In the house and in the field. The crops never withered. The crops never were diseased. The animals had twins and triplets like they'd never had before. Potiphar hit the jackpot. He bought, as a slave, God's future hero. And he benefited from it. And God's presence and favor and blessing came along for the ride. Joseph was not alone. His stock was on the rise. Everyone noticed, including Potiphar's wife. Now, Joseph was a pretty man. And what do I mean by that? He's Rachel's son. Rachel was beautiful, is Joseph's sadly favorite wife. All right, or I should say Jacob's favorite wife. And and Joseph, this son, had taken on his mother's characteristics. The Bible takes a verse to point out he was like a pretty man. And Potiphar's wife noticed him. And she wanted him. Now, when you think of this part of the world today, you do not think of the religions of the world as spawning kind of the culture that you see in this chapter. This is pre Christianity and this is pre Islam. Moral norms in the ancient world back then were not what moral norms became later and even are today. So she tried to seduce him daily. And again, this is not a how-to passage on dealing with temptation, because if it is, I'd say Joseph didn't do a very good job. He said, how can you say that, Paul? Because he didn't leave or run for a long time. He's there day after day after day enduring this. This was constant and he never tried to get out of it. He just tried to get away from her. And finally she has him alone. Maybe she's in her quarters. He's in the home. She grabs him by his outer robe. He slips out of it. Moment of truth. Moment of truth. What's he going to do? This time he did run. She recognized she was in a little bit of an embarrassing situation. She claimed victim status, that he had tried to rape her. And he went to jail in the palace prison. Not a regular jail. A jail in the palace prison. Now what's interesting, and scholars point this out, it's actually likely that Potiphar believed Joseph over his wife. Because if he believes his wife, Joseph is executed. And some believe there was such character in Joseph that he had noticed that he actually believed Joseph over his own wife. But now he's in prison. But God's favor, again, God's favor and blessing and presence go along with Joseph again to prison. First into slavery, into Potiphar's home. Now, through this situation with the wife, he's going to prison. God's favor and blessing and presence follow him again. Joseph cannot find a place where God is not. And Joseph is in prison, given responsibilities in prison, and he's promoted. In prison. Eventually, the prisoner is running the prison. You know, you've heard of the inmates running the asylum? Well, this isn't like that kind of institution. But that's what's going on. He's a prisoner running the prison. Everything he touched in every area of life succeeded. Now, granted, I think Joseph had a great business mind, and I think he was trained to do that. I think all he did with his father and running the herds and trying to run (laughs) his brothers helped him with that. But that's not the only reason he succeeded because Moses makes it clear God is causing him to prosper in every situation he touches because God was with him. No matter how far from the land of promise, no matter how distant from his father and his brothers and his mother, no matter what the plight in slavery and prison, God was with him. He couldn't get into a situation where God's favor was not towards him, God's face was not towards him, and God's presence was not with him. There isn't one place on the planet the highest highest in the universe, the deepest depth, that God's presence does not follow us like it followed Joseph, whether we feel it or not. And I think that's one of the reasons Joseph made the choice he made, which is the third point. For the child of God, his presence and favor and blessing motivate obedience. Now, obviously Moses wants us to see the story of Potiphar's wife and what happened here. The story of Joseph resisting this situation is here for, I think, a couple of reasons. It does serve primarily as a transition to get Joseph from slave in Potiphar's house, whom God blessed, to prisoner in sort of the palace prison, whom God blessed. So she's a transitionary experience to get him into prison. But I think it's more than that. I think we'd all agree there's more going on. We didn't have to have this whole story. It also shows the emergence of a moral leader in Israel, in Joseph. Israel was supposed to be a righteous nation. God said that to Abraham back in, I think, chapter 18, 19, how his descendants would would be a righteous nation. But if you look at what we've talked about in the last couple of months, Joseph's ancestors were a bit short on good behavior and ethics. I mean, there's some, when you want to feel good about yourself and the choices you've made, read Genesis. Genesis. Because these people were messed up, and God still chose to bless them, but they were messed up and made a lot of really bad choices. But Joseph is highlighted. The only time in Genesis this kind of phrase appears, and I believe it's the Pharaoh talking about Joseph a couple of chapters from now, because Joseph gets out of prison, some good things happen, I don't want to wreck it, that's next week. But in Genesis 41, 38, the pharaoh, the king, eventually says of Joseph, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? I think some translations might say in whom the spirit of God dwells. I'm not sure. But in whom is a divine spirit? The king of Egypt recognizes God's hand on Joseph. That is not said about Abraham. It's not said about Abraham's son, Abraham's grandson, etc. It's said about Joseph. But I also got to wonder how Joseph reacts if he goes through these experiences with no sense that God has followed him into Egypt. All right, so he's down in Egypt, and God isn't prospering him. God isn't exemplifying his presence to him. There have been no visions or dreams in Egypt. There are eventually, but not yet. No visions and dreams. He's remembering the visions and dreams he had as a young man that seemed like God was communicating to him, but now he's in this foreign country, hasn't had any visions or dreams, but he had to recognize how God was with him, how God had blessed him, God's presence and blessing in his life, God's favor that was evident in everything he touched in his New boss saw it, and eventually the prison saw it. The chief prisoner saw it, or I should say the priest, chief of the prison saw it. God's presence and blessing made him remember God's other promises, the dreams of a future. And so that stayed with him because God's presence was with him, God's blessing was with him. And so when he's tempted and alone, his response to this woman is, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? I don't know if he says that if God's favor wasn't obviously on his life, if he really had no sense that God was with him, no awareness of God's presence, no belief that God was blessing him and that's why he was being elevated, even as a slave and even as a prisoner, maybe he says, I'm done with this. God can find somebody else to mess with. I'm the victim here. I'm punting my moral guidelines and I'm sleeping with her. And I think he didn't. I think he didn't because he knew at this point God was with him. It's his awareness that God was with him even in slavery that kept his faith alive. It's his awareness that God was with him when he goes from slavery to a slave in prison That made him believe that God was with him and he kept his faith alive. Three applications as we close. First, the presence of God is intended to be a source of comfort and strength. This is a huge issue theologically. It's meant to be. Moses speaks to it, the psalmists speak to it. You know, Psalm, I think it's David, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee? You know, God is everywhere. Jesus speaks to it, Jesus spoke to it extensively, even the theology of it, when he said that there would be a change from sort of the Old Testament era to the New Testament era, that when he left, he was going to send a comforter or somebody would come alongside of us who would actually be in us, the Holy Spirit that has a different relationship with believers at some level than ever in the history of salvation. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't with people in the Old Testament as they came to faith, but there is an indwelling, a heightened indwelling that Jesus spoke of that we experienced that was not normal back then. Jesus spoke to it. The Great Commission, Jesus says what? It's the last thing he says. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, I'm leaving Yes, I'm sending my spirit. My presence is going to be with you. And he's saying it to a group of people who are going to be martyred. I will not leave you. There's nothing worse in life than really feeling completely alone. And there's nothing harder on faith than the feeling that God has left you alone, alone in persecution alone in a doctor's office with a bad prognosis, alone without a job, alone without a friend, alone without a spouse, alone without a relative, alone. But we're not. And it's not just meant to be an intellectual panacea, like, yeah, God's with us always. God is with us always, or he is not God. Second, the presence of God is not a protection from every difficult situation or circumstance. I really don't like this point. I really resent that I'm having to say it. But it's true. And this is why we we struggle with this. This is why this seems so incongruous to us. Along with God's presence comes suffering. God is with us, but he doesn't put us in bubble wrap. And I want bubble wrap around my life. I want a God-ordained bubble where God protects me from this fallen world, from its sickness and death, from the sins of others that create pain and victimization, from my own choices. I'd like to be protected from them too because some of them have been doozies. And from the satanic or demonic realm. These are the things that cause difficulty in the world. A fallen world, the sins of others, our own sins, and the evil one. Those are sort of the four realms from which most of your pain comes from. And we want to be protected from all of that. And we somehow feel if God is really present, if he's really with us from the highest height to the deepest depth, then somehow our lives should work out better. And here's the stink of it. God is with us. He sees all of this. And if you want to be mad at God, this is the number one place to start. He lets it happen. He is with us. And sometimes he does intervene. And sometimes even in miraculous ways. But he does allow The world to follow its natural course. Evil to go unpunished for now. Heaven to be a hopeful, better place, not heaven on earth. The Bible says Satan is the prince of this world. We tend to forget that when we have high expectations of God, don't we? God is pretty clear. Satan's got a lot going on down here. And God does allow it. So we've got this this sort of weird incongruity where, where it can actually shatter our faith. And it does shatter the faith of some. God is always with us. Life isn't working out. God is right with me. He's letting my life not work out. The way i want to he's allowing pain he's not always intervening the way i want and that is hard for us i get it i've experienced that disappointment i've not always been happy with my lord and savior jesus christ and he can handle that too by the way if you read the psalms david was often pretty unhappy with his god He talked about it pretty openly. God can handle that. He's got big shoulders. But our job is to hang on and to recognize this is not heaven. This is not the perfect world. This is the realm. This world is the realm where sin does dominate, where the effects of sin dominate until God comes back and makes it right. In the meantime... We've got the presence of God with us always, and yet very imperfect world and lives at times. And finally, we should all have open eyes for the presence and activity of God. There are times where God does intervene. There are times where God will come into our lives and he will change circumstances. It has happened. It's happened in your life probably. It's happened in my life. Um, I've, I've experienced enough of ministry and being around people to see God actually do some things that I would say are in the miraculous realm. I've seen God intervene in situations that are pretty significant where there is no other explanation than God intervened. Sometimes he doesn't intervene the way he wants, but he gives people the grace to deal with something they otherwise would not be able to deal with. God does show up many times, even in ways we want him to. But a lot of times he might show up and he's kind of unrecognized. We need to have open eyes for that. Lots of stories of disappointment with God, but there's lots of stories where God is more than present and he's active and he does intervene. Elvis Presley No sermon complete without an Elvis Presley illustration. Elvis Presley used to frequent Little Thompson Steakhouse in Tennessee. He was good friends with the owner. who used to give him free food before he was famous. One night when he was at the height of his fame, the steakhouse held the ultimate Elvis Presley impersonator contest. A large crowd arrived, including Elvis Presley himself, and Elvis decided to take part, and he sat quietly at the back until it was his turn to do an Elvis impersonation. He said confidently, I'm going to mash this. Lil was worried the place would go crazy when everyone realized it was Elvis. There was no need. He sang Love Me Tender to polite applause and came in third place. <laughs> now, I've been practicing my Love Me Tender rendition, but I'm not going to give that to you here today. But here's the point. Elvis couldn't win an Elvis impersonator contest. And I gotta tell you, sometimes God comes into our lives and he's just as unrecognized. He's just, he can't win a God impersonation contest and he shows up. And we're people of faith. But sometimes he does show up. Sometimes in miraculous ways sometimes in moving some circumstances that are really not explainable except he must have been with me. And sometimes just by giving us the grace to deal with something that will be better someday but not now. We should all have open eyes for the presence and activity of God. We need to be on a God hunt in our lives because he is there. God, we thank you for your word. And we recognize what it's like to be Joseph. Not not a slave in Egypt and not a prisoner in an Egyptian prison, but we know what it's like to feel alone. We know what it's like to feel like there was a point where we were close to you and you had our back and maybe now you don't. There's disappointment with you that takes place in our lives from time to time, but help us to see your word And believe it, that you never are not there. That you are God. And our feelings do not determine reality or the truth. You've always been with us. You always will be with us. But you don't guarantee the perfect life, the bubble-wrapped life. Help us to somehow hold those things both as true as we walk this life until we see you someday. In Jesus' name, amen.